Well, good morning, church. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we stand before you now, and we ask for mercy. We ask for your special grace to accompany the preaching of your word as well as the listening. We pray that you would impact our hearts. Father, as you have regenerated us and you filled us with the love of Christ, we want to love you and we want to show this love to others. And Lord, as we learn from this section of scripture that you bring us to this morning, about the kind of love and care and dedication that Paul showed to the church in Thessalonica, I pray that you would just motivate us and build fire underneath us to follow his example even as he followed that of Christ. So bless us, Father. I pray that the word would be clear. I pray that we would um, accept it as from you. Bless us, Lord. We pray and we ask these things in Christ's name, amen. Well, I want to invite you to turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. As we continue our study, we'll pick up in uh, chapter 2 with verse 17. We'll go into chapter 3 this morning, and we will uh, prepare for the next section. I hope that over the last few weeks of our studies, you're, you're beginning to realize the treasures that are found in this book and, and that, that we mine week after week in order to apply in our walk with God and, and with one another. This is a very personal letter, and so you will see how uh, that personality, so to speak, uh, will is influencing Paul, is influencing the church, and I hope that it will influence us as well. As you flip to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, allow me to ask you a question. Have you ever been asked when applying for a job or perhaps um, a school this question? What is your greatest skill or accomplishment in life? Oftentimes we see this question on, on applications or we're asked to put that answer on our resume. When faced with this question, all sorts of thoughts cross your minds and you begin to sort um, through them, trying to find and locate that perfect answer that when the HR hiring manager, right, will read it, will be like, that's my guy or that's my gal, I like that accomplishment, I want that. And you'll be able to land that job. Now, maybe some of you guys uh, or gals here who are sitting, uh, work for HR, and maybe you have the privilege to read these resumes or these applications. I came across a few answers which I thought were, were pretty hilarious. Um, when, when asked about their greatest accomplishment in life, one teenager in trying to get a summer gig, he put this, sixth grade honor roll student. Um, another one, an older guy probably, he wrote, what is your greatest accomplishment? He said, been winning in life since the day I was conceived. Not bad. Um, there was one guy who wanted to get a, an IT gig and, and when asked about his accomplishment, he said, learn how to program in many languages. So they were intrigued, they brought him in for an interview and they found out that 
the guy could install Windows operating system in many different languages. Um, as far as someone's skill, there was a guy who, who wrote, over the years, developed great attention to detail, and then proceeded to misspell the word detail. <laughs> or check this one out. What is your greatest skill in life? He says, very enthusiastic, comma, when prompted. <laughs> now, people have found various ways to, to answer these questions. If you were faced with this question this morning, how would you answer? What would be your greatest accomplishment? What would be the skill that you would point to? We find ourselves in the passage where Paul, without being prompted, very enthusiastically gives us his answer. Here we find Paul bearing his heart, his pastoral heart, which cares for the sheep and is willing to sacrifice to benefit others. In fact, I think there's perhaps no other portion in Scripture than this one that we find ourselves in today that really bears the heart of a shepherd. And before you tune out and you say, you know what, this is for the four guys that are in this church. This is not for me. I, I, I want to assure you that this passage here has broader implications and applications for us. What we observe in this passage here this morning is a picture not just of a shepherd, but also a picture of a great shepherd, Jesus Christ. It is the portrait of a heart of a person who's been touched by the love of Christ and then wants to, being affected by that love, infect others for Jesus. Now Paul's concern here expressed in these verses is motivated by his personal union with Jesus Christ as he pours out his heart. Remember in Philippians, we, we study this book in our regional groups, Philippians chapter 1, and writing to another church, Paul says this, God is my witness how I yearn for you all with what? With affections of Christ. Uh, this is not something that I conjure up in and, and within myself. As I experience the love of Christ, it is poured out into my heart, and that love then flows out to others. So Paul's goals here, Paul's heart here for the Thessalonian church is a reflection of a heart of a Savior, a heart of Jesus. And so join me as we read chapter 2. We'll pick up in verse 13, and we'll read through 3, 5. And we will get into this passage. Paul writes, for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a word of man, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same suffering at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. With the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while in person, not in spirit, 
We're all the more eager with great desire to see your face, for we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, more than once. And yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith. For fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. As we analyze this text, here's what I want us to walk away from this place just one thought as, as, as we look at three simple points. Our greatest accomplishment in life as Christians will be the people that we have impacted for Jesus. Our greatest accomplishment in life as believers will ultimately be the people that we have impacted for Christ. Having a heart of Christ means that we endeavor to see Christ formed in others. And as we examine this historical account of Paul's just pouring out his heart, I hope that this is where we will land here this morning. The first application that I want us to see in this passage is this. The heart of Christ cares for people. The heart of Christ cares for people. Notice the contrast here in verse 17. In the second chapter, Paul points to three distinct groups of people. First, he addresses the church. The church, look at verse 1 of chapter 2, for you, brethren. Look at verse 9, for you. Paul, Paul appeals to the church to go back and remember their conduct while they were still with them the first, during their first visit. And in verse 13, when you, verse 14, when you. Paul wants the church to realize the, the effects that their preaching and modeling of the gospel had on them. You accepted the word of God, not as from us, but as belonging to God himself. So there's this church. And then the second group that he gets to is the group that we studied last Sunday are the Jews. The Jews. And, and verse 14 and 15, pay attention, he he talks about this specific groups, uh, group, and he says that these guys, the Jews, they killed Jesus and the prophets, and they kicked us out as well. They were the reason why Paul had to flee along with his companions quickly without having the privilege and opportunity just to spend more time with these young believers to encourage them in faith. And he says very important thing. Notice that they are not pleasing to God. They oppose men. In verse 15. They are not pleasing to God. They oppose men. How? By hindering the proclamation of the gospel of Christ. So that those who hear the word of God may not be saved. So this second group. They hate the gospel. They oppose those who preach the gospel. 
They don't care. They're hostile for the people who need the gospel. And therefore, as a result, Paul says that they are not pleasing to God. And look at verse 17. But we. This major contrast between himself, Silvanus, and Timothy. Contrasting us with them. But we. Here Paul draws a distinction between those groups. Unlike this group who hates you, who want to hinder us from speaking the gospel to you, we have great concern for you, he says. I want you to know something, right? I love you. I care for you. But we brethren, he says, having been taken away from you for a short time in person, not in spirit, desired on more than one occasion to come to you. So we see this contrast. Paul does not want them to be associated with the other group because their feelings for Thessalonians are completely different. The presentation is completely different. The motive is completely different. The method is completely different. Why? Because one group hates, the other one loves and cares. Look at this care. In verse 8, Paul has already described his love for them when he says, having so fond an affection, affection, having so fond a love, having this deep love for you, we were well pleased to not only impart the gospel, but we just were willing to sacrifice our lives to you. We were willing to give up our comfort so that you can be the beneficiaries of God's grace. And in verse 17 here, Paul continues to display this care by pointing that his absence from them is not a fault of his own. Remember uh, when when Max preached a couple weeks ago, he, he alluded to a historical reference where there were those Jews who were there and what they were saying is that, listen, Paul doesn't care for you. He's here for the money, right? He only wants to just make quick converts Take your cash and run away. Look how quickly he ran away. And look, he hasn't been back since. That was the accusation. He hasn't been back since. If he really cares for you, how come he's not calling you? How come he's not writing to you? How come he doesn't spend time with you? And Paul says this, brethren, I want you to know that we were taken away. And on more than one occasion, I wanted to come to you. We desire to see your face. We ache for you, Thessalonians. We wanted to come and we wanted to be with you because we care for you. In chapter 3, Paul tells us why he had such deep concern. Because he was afraid that in the midst of this great persecution, right, which has resulted from their quick departure, that this persecution would affect the faith of the congregation. He even says at the beginning, at the end of uh, verse 5 here, we were afraid that our labor would be in vain. Oh, how much we cared and oh, how much we wanted to come to you. I mean, consider for a minute how Paul describes his feelings and his longing here. On the surface, we may be tempted to read this as some kind of hyperbole, some kind of over-the-top love talk, right? Not real a genuine expression of Paul's heart here. It it, kind of sounds like Paul is this helicopter parent who just hovers over the kids. We wanted to be there. Every move that you were trying to make, we wanted to, to come alongside and we wanted to assist you. We wanted to be right there wherever you are. Uh, He uses this very unique way to express his deep concern. Notice two things 
in these verses. In verse 17, he says, having been taken away from you, this word literally, this phrase literally translates as orphaned. We have been orphaned. In ancient world, the term orphan could mean either the child who lost his parents or the parents who have lost their children. Uh, Sometimes the word took on a broader meaning of being bereaved, uh, of losing someone who is so precious and who's so close to you. And, and if you recall, Paul has already used this metaphor of a mother, the metaphor of a, of a father. And he says, we were to you like a mother. We were to you like a father. And all of a sudden here in verse 17, you know what we feel like right now? This very moment before we heard back from Timothy, we felt as though our little baby has been ripped away from us and we would never see them again. I mean, for you parents, imagine what it would be like to have your precious child or children removed away without the ability to ever see them again. And this is what Paul is saying here. We were orphaned. We cared for you. And then another uh, one in, in verse 17, he says, we were more eager with great desire to see you. This word desire is the same word that's often translated as lust or passion. They were literally translated, we we had great passion and we lusted after the thought of seeing you. I mean, that's like, Paul, hold up a second. I mean, they're not that great. But, But that's how Paul feels. We had this great desire to come to you. This is the only one of few references in the New Testament where this word is translated in a positive sense. We had this amazing desire to come and be with you. Can can you feel Paul's passion and and care for this church? So great was his desire to see them that it took power as great as Satan himself to prevent him from coming to them. And that's what he says in verse 18 at the end. But Satan hindered us. It's not like we were lazy. It's not like we got what we wanted. Satan hindered us. Just like the Jews who who persecute and hinder the believers, the chief unbeliever, Satan, thwarts the efforts of the godly. And now Paul doesn't tell us what exactly this opposition was. In fact, reading uh, the account in uh, Acts as well, in Acts 17, we don't really know. He doesn't pinpoint this is what happened. Perhaps it was the persecution. Perhaps it was the Jason's promise where he says they may not be coming back here. Whatever the instance is, Paul knew and we should be okay with that. He just said, Satan hindered us. What we do know is that Satan does not operate outside of God's sovereign control. And so whatever this decision was, whatever happened here in this situation, we can trust that it was for the benefit of the Thessalonians and Paul himself. But Paul is aware. In the spirit, he understands that this opposition is something greater. It is satanic opposition. What can we learn here from the heart of Paul? Well, Paul had a heart of Christ. Paul had a heart of Christ, the the, the heart of a shepherd, as we read at the beginning from John chapter 10. Christ says, I am the good shepherd. I care for my sheep as opposed to those who come in and pretend to care, pretend to be shepherds, and they run away, right, at the sight of what? Danger. Run away. I am the good shepherd. And here Paul displays the genuine characteristic 
of a shepherd. A person with the heart of Christ genuinely cares for the welfare of those around him. A person with the heart of Christ is able to see beyond himself, even in desperate situation as Paul was, and notice the hurting people around him. A person with a heart of Christ is not so self-observed as to just see right here in front of him and within him. A person with a heart of Christ represents Christ not only in the content of the gospel, but also in the manner and this deep concern and deep affection for all these people. Now, why did Paul have such care? Why was Paul so passionate about these people? And not just this people, all the churches that he wrote to. You just can see Paul is passionate. I want to be there. I want to bless you. I, I want to help you. I want to care for you. Why? And we get to our second point, and it is this. The heart of Christ considers investment in people as the greatest accomplishment or blessing. The heart of Christ considers investment into people as the greatest accomplishment or blessing. For who is our hope, verse 9, or joy, or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you, Thessalonians, in the presence of the Lord at his coming? This this, uh, for at the beginning of verse 19, it introduces the reason and, and it answers this question, why, Paul? And do you understand what Paul is getting at here? Uh, he, he, in essence, saying, you Thessalonians, you people, are the thing we boast in. If there's anything that brings me joy and honor and fame, it is you. Now, again, this may seem a little bit excessive. It may seem a little bit obsessive even. As if Paul is displaying some kind of unhealthy codependency. It's like, we need you because you are our crown. Therefore, we're just, we want to be a blessing to you. Remember what he wrote to Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2, where he says, you are our letter. He's talking about letters of recommendation. He says, you are our letter of recommendation. You are our resume. You are what we, what we want to be known forever. We're pursuing you. So if anyone has any questions, they can just look at you. Now, now shouldn't we as Christians with the heart of Christ be boasting in Jesus alone and, and not in sinful beings? Uh, should our joy or, or happiness be wrapped up in this sinful church or this perfect church, but in people alone? Uh, wouldn't that lead to great disappointment? Well, apparently, according to Paul... Not really. Paul looks forward, notice in verse 19. He looks forward to the future. And he looks forward to the return of Christ. When Christ returns as a king, when the entire population, when the entire creation notice and bows down before the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And on that day, Paul says... We all, when we all stand before God, listen, in the presence of the Lord Jesus at his coming, there will be a day when we all stand before him in his presence. The thing Paul says I will be most proud of is what? Will be the people that God has brought to faith and consequent maturity through my testimony and my ministry. 
Think about that. When I there before the throne of God and before Christ himself boast in Jesus, I will boast my crown, my exaltation in you. My love for Christ stimulates my love for you, is what he says. He says, for who is our hope? Hope. Paul had this confidence that the work which they had begun there just a few months before, three months possibly, would increase and that that the church would be faithful to the end. You're my hope. I have confidence. You're my joy. Their faith, their determination to follow Christ, even in the midst of this great persecution that we talked about last Sunday, brought great delight to Paul. Great joy to Paul. Who is our hope? Oh, I look at you and I see that you're following Jesus. I see that even though things are not always perfect, you continue to obey Christ. I am rejoicing. You're my joy. And then he says, my crown of exaltation. My crown of exaltation. The the Thessalonians served as Paul's trophies. This victor who, who would finish the race and he would be crowned. And Paul says, you are my crown. F.F. Bruce says, when, when Christ returns, Paul will present his converts to the Lord who commissioned him as evidence of the manner in which he has discharged his mission. The heart of Christ considers investment in people as the greatest accomplishment and blessing. As I was Uh, preparing for for this passage, I I was reminded of a missionary who once was asked about his salary. Uh, A person knew, the person asking, he knew that this missionary wasn't making much. And so he thought, why would this guy who has to just dedicate himself to this service, uh, so generously give himself to help complete strangers and be paid so little? What is this? Missionary pulled out a letter and and read these words, and he says, if, if it weren't for you, I wouldn't know Jesus as my Savior. Every morning I kneel in prayer, thanking God for everything you've done for me. Closed it, put it in his pocket, and answered, this is my pay. This is why I do what I do. Why? Because before the Lord, your children will then point to your investment into them. Your Sunday school kids you have the privilege of impacting them for eternity. Your neighbors that are next to you, you have been planted there for a reason. Why? To be the light of the gospel to them. Befriend them and show them the love of Christ. That is why. Church, Paul is reminding us that the greatest accomplishment in life will be the people that we have impacted for Christ. You know, today we are concerned about so many different things, and rightly so. We don't want to discount these things. We have the kids, right, in our church who are sitting here, and they are concerned about growing up. And they are excited to join junior high and high school. They can't wait till they're 12. And you don't want to disparage that. That's great. That's what they're driven. That, that, that's good. We have teens here among us who are focused on, on graduating and, and moving on to college and perhaps learning a trade to be able to provide for themselves and their families. Not all teenagers, I'll, I'll give you that, but, but some are, are looking forward to that. Uh, there are those who are a little bit older who, who worry about, you know, 
there are opportunities. They want to be able to provide for, for their families, for their spouses, for their children, um, so that they wouldn't lack anything, perhaps even have some extra funds to, to maybe buy something that they want, something that they may not necessarily need. There are those in their 50s and 60s who, whose kids have left the house. They look for ways to fill up their free time. And perhaps they take up plans or maybe pick up some hobbies that they were forced to put down when raising their children. Then there are those who are closer to seeing the Lord. And quite frankly, they don't care about anything else but that. You see, in each stage of our lives, there's this focus and there's a goal that we pursue. And I want to encourage us this morning that as you focus on your primary responsibilities, know that your investment in people, both believers and unbelievers, will go the furthest and will echo into eternity. What you do now with people around you will have the greatest impact. When we stand before the Lord on that day, our greatest treasure will not be our fancy cars. It will not be our big homes. It will not be our degrees. It will not be our accomplishments. The greatest treasure will be what we have deposited in the lives of others. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you? For you are our glory and joy. Barclay says, a man's greatest glory lies in those whom he has set or helped on the path to Christ. Thinking about heaven, Spurgeon said this, one reason some saints will have a greater fullness of heaven than others will be that they did more for heaven than others. By God's grace, they were enabled to bring more souls there. Isn't that a great encouragement to us? We look forward to heaven because Christ will be there to spend time with Christ, eternity with Christ. We look forward to heaven. Why? Because we will see all those who, for whom we have labored actually make it there. And we will see our hand in it by God's grace. Isn't that the greatest encouragement and the motivation for us to actually go about our lives in our stages wherever the Lord has and see how we can impact others for Jesus? Now, Paul certainly had this eternal perspective. So beginning in, in chapter 3, we not only see his care for the people, his, his investment into people, but also his commitment. His commitment, which brings us to our third point, the heart of Christ commits to people. The heart of Christ commits to people. Therefore, in verse 3, in chapter 3, verse 1, because we look forward, Paul says, to the time when we will stand before the throne of God and rejoice before God concerning you, therefore we commit ourselves to you today. We commit ourselves to you today. You see, when, when Paul got a report back from Timothy, which we will study more in depth next time, about the Thessalonian condition, uh, he could have simply rejoiced that, you know, that they led him to Jesus, they spoke the word of God to them, and that they had opportunity to just witness to them. He could have rejoiced about that fact. 
He could have concluded that his job as a missionary or an evangelist was done. It has been fulfilled when it comes to the preaching of the gospel of Christ. However, this here is certainly not the case. Paul understood that his goal as a minister of Christ, his goal really as a Christian, is not to get conversions, but to get what? Disciples. Not conversions, but discipleship. Therefore, therefore, he knew that the Thessalonians could be in big trouble. In, in chapter 3, verse 1 and 5, twice he says, we could endure it no longer. When there was silence... When we couldn't go because Satan prohibited us from going, when we couldn't hear anything back from you, when there was silence, he says, we could endure it no longer. That is how passionate, that is how caring Paul was for them. Here's a man of, who's in agony over someone else's spiritual well-being. His concerns, or Thessalonians' concerns, became Paul's concerns. And not being permitted to go himself because he said, I tried on multiple occasions, not once, more than once. What did he say in verse 3? He says, we thought it best to send Timothy. We weren't going to stay put. You know, one thing about Paul is he, he, didn't, he didn't conclude and say, you know what? Must be the will of God. Must be the will of God since Satan is, you know, prohibiting us and God must have us do ministry somewhere else. And rightly so, they did ministry somewhere else. But the care for that church was evident in what? He says, I am going to send Timothy. I'm going to take my right-hand man and I'm going to sacrifice half of my missionary team to send them over there so that he can find out what? About your faith. And so that he would minister on my behalf. And you would ask, what would Paul do if he had an opportunity to go himself to visit the church? And I would tell you that he would do exactly the same thing that Timothy did. He went to strengthen and to encourage the church. Why? Because Timothy's on the same team. Our brother and God's fellow working in the gospel of Christ. There was nothing else that Timothy would have done or that Paul would have done that Timothy did not do. And for whatever reason... Timothy was able to go and visit the Thessalonians as opposed to Paul. But Paul, his, his care and his commitment to their faith is evident. And he sends Timothy, our brother, to strengthen and encourage what? As to your faith. Our commitment to people must not stop at simply offering the gospel message. Certainly there is a place for us to sit down with someone and to share our faith and to give quick gospel explanation. However, church, we, we must remember that salvation is not simply a matter of accepting Jesus. It's not even a matter of understanding the truth. Jesus never called people to accept or to receive Jesus, but to follow him. You follow me. Whenever you see Jesus in the gospel, he talked about discipleship in these terms. Count the cost. Count the cost. Pick up your cross. Follow me. Don't turn back. Hey, are you guys going to turn back? I see most of the crowds are not following me. He looks to his disciples and he says, okay, your friends are leaving. Are you guys going to do the same thing? Are you going to turn back and go? He was after discipleship. 
we have not finished or accomplished the mandate of the Great Commission Church until we have helped someone become a follower of Jesus, not just his fan. There are many fans of Christ, many people who love Christ, but not many followers of Christ. And, and as recent converts here, Paul knew what the church was facing. They were facing two things. Number one is persecution, and we spent time talking about that last Sunday that once you commit to Christ, it's inevitable that you will feel and go through persecution. And in, in verse 4 here, Paul alludes to it and he says, For indeed, when we were with you, notice, short period of time with them spent for a few weeks. And he says at that time, just when you placed your faith in Christ, we came along you and we said, listen, brother, listen, sister. If you are serious about this, tomorrow you will feel fiery hell. Tomorrow, you will feel the pressure in regards to your commitment to Christ. We kept on telling you in advance, not just once. They didn't just have a seminar on persecution. Paul says that every time we met, we kept telling you over and over and over again, what? That you are going to suffer. And guess what? It happened. Why? Because it always happens. When you are serious about following Jesus, and picking up your cross, and counting the cost, and not wanting to turn back. It will happen. It will always happen. We kept telling you, and as you know, it's there. And so Paul, here, he knows, man, this church is going through severe, severe trial. And, and, and second, in verse 5, notice, he says that this church is going through personal attacks of the enemy. Personal attacks of the enemy. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith. Look, Paul is afraid for fear that the tempter might have tempted you. And get this, and our labor would be in vain. I was afraid because I know the enemy. Paul was afraid because the tempter would come in and would dig up the roots these precious, these small infant roots of their Christian faith by introducing lies, by distorting the truth, even by bringing in this persecution. You know, I, I often think that our, our ideas of Satan, we, we, we underestimate the type of enemy we deal with in Satan. We kind of resort him to some kind of fantasy figure instead of this ardent opponent of our faith. Every time we believe, every time we exercise faith in Christ, he is right there to destroy that. Remember what Peter said in, in writing to his, his recipients. He says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour but resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same affliction of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So Paul deploys Timothy to do just that. Help them resist the enemy. Encourage them in their faith. Tell them as they lose sight that this is okay. We told you about this. Continue to trust the Lord. Paul understood the power of the enemy. 
He feared that during their absence without having a man who is rooted in Scripture, that the devil would come in and that he would steal away the word that is preached. And so he says in verse 5, for this reason, I sent Timothy so that he can encourage you as to your faith. And as soon as Timothy comes back in verse 6, we will find out about that next Sunday. Paul is just ecstatic. That is why I think in verse 17 and 8 or 18, 19 and 20, he says, I am so joyful. Why? Because the devil hasn't prevailed. The devil hasn't prevailed. Now, our commitment to people must not stop at a simple offering of the gospel message. We must be committed to see others through the struggles of their life. Through the struggles of their life. I just want to go back to verse 5 and, and, and make a comment on this thing, and our, on this verse, and our labor would be in vain. What does Paul say? What does Paul mean by that? Can your faith be overthrown? You know, I will remind you that Paul was driven out of town before he could establish whether the Thessalonians' faith, whether their belief um, was actually genuine faith or just an emotional reaction. He wasn't there long enough to see that. And so with the persecution on the way, he is thinking, I wonder what happens. Paul is in fear. Would our efforts be brought to nothing? Would, would, would this excitement about Jesus be simple flash of lightning, basically, and would wither away when actual temptation comes in and when persecution comes in and you have to stand for Christ and you have to denounce the world and you may have to denounce your families? Would that be real, genuine faith? Or would you go back and say, you know what, never mind, that was exciting for that time, but now I choose to go back. He was aware that the final outcome of his labors was dependent upon the faithfulness of his converts. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you, what? Was not in vain. You know when he wrote that? He wrote that after him finding out that they were standing strong in faith. He was afraid. And so some of you parents here, you're, you're, you're preaching the gospel to your children, you're modeling Jesus, and, and you're saying, you know, I don't know if, if this guy, or I don't know if this guy, gal is a believer, that's okay. Keep working, keep praying, keep hoping, keep bringing them before the throne of God so that there will be a time when that faith matures, when that faith flourishes, and you can say, I did not labor in vain. Like Paul and Timothy, are we concerned to the point that we commit to assist others in faith? I want to encourage you, look for people in whom you can pour in the love of Christ. We have many children in our congregation, and they need you to invest in them, not just their parents, but you, the congregation, to pour into them. We have teenagers that, that you simply just need to stop and you need to talk with them about anything. Just talk with them. Tell them you care for them. 
Many of them are longing to make relationships with people who are outside of their circles. That's a good thing. That's what church is for. That's why we invite invite them in. Do your duty as a congregation of Christ to impact them. Tell them that you care for them. Take them out. Spend time with them outside of these walls so that they would be assured that it's not simply a talk, that it's actual life and concern. We have families here that are going through difficulties today, even this week, where their circumstances can be an occasion for the enemy to come in and to tempt them to what? Not trust in Christ. Will you commit to bless them, to spend time with them, sit down with them, listen to them, pray for them? Recognize the people who struggle and look beyond their sin even. I will remind you here, we're painting the Thessalonians here as this perfect and glorious church, and and they are, but also Thessalonians. We'll get to chapter 4 where Paul has to address some very serious sins. Sins of what? Sexual immorality. And it's not like Paul just finds out after he writes the first two pages or first two chapters of the book. He addresses their sins, but even in through all that, he he overlooks and and his compassion, his care for the church, you can feel it. He knows that there are some sinners in their congregation. And by the way, there are sinners in every congregation because the congregation is made up of people. Recognize people who struggle and look beyond their sins, failures, or complaints and try to get them back on their feet. That's what Paul does. There are those who have rejected Christ, and they're in our midst here. The Lord brings them Sunday after Sunday. They reject Christ, but they're here. And praise God that you are here. And we want to show God's love to you. And we want you to feel that love of God even today. In conclusion, church, we are, are we endeavoring to see Christ formed in others? Can we say that this is the desire of my heart this morning? I know it may be faint, and I know all of us have a lot of room to grow, but can we come to a place where we can acknowledge the fact that this is the desire for Christ, of Christ, that he's a great shepherd who shepherds his people? Can we, in one sense, resonate with that? Why was Paul caring, considerate, and committed Because Paul's heart was a reflection of Christ's heart. I'll read you one last quote by a commentator. He wrote, Paul's anguish and his compassion and his sense that he had had Uh, that he just had to do something on behalf of these new Christians and his passionate longing to ensure that they persevered in their faith. These things were put into Paul by Jesus Christ. They are a reflection of Jesus Christ and the measure of those things that we see in Paul's life are, get this, only a small measure of the intensity of Jesus Christ for the salvation and perseverance of his people. I mean, think about this. Christ right now is praying for you even as we hear this message preached that you would not fail, that you would be faithful to the word, that you would be faithful to him. And the characteristic, the heart of Paul that we see here is just a small reflection of what Christ is doing to this day. Let's leave with this thought this afternoon 
what we see in Paul is only a shadowy reflection of the deep affection of God himself to us. I am reminded of Jude chapter 1, the only chapter, verse 24 and 25. It says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. That is the attitude of God. He is able. For God so loved that he sent. For Christ so loved that he came and died. For spirit so loved that he came and applied this regeneration to us. All three persons are invested into making an eternal impact on us. What they have set out to do in Scripture we can be assured will be done because that's what Jude says in 24 and 25. And the way God does that is so often he uses sinful human beings like us to accomplish his purposes. We are never more like Christ than when we care for the people, when we invest in people and commit to see people conformed to the image of Christ, so that they in turn could do the same. For that is the great commission. Our Father, we thank you that we have this encouragement of Scripture. We thank you that to some extent, Lord, you, you, you are giving us these affections. And they're not seen all the time. We confess that to you. We confess, I confess, Lord, that, that I am inclined to be lover of self than lover of another so much that we come and we repent before you. And I pray, would you build this passion in us like the passion of, of Paul and that which is evident in Scripture of Christ. That, Father, we would be concerned with being a blessing to others and impacting them for Jesus. It may be giving them stuff. It may be assisting them in tangible ways and help us to see these needs and actually do it. Oh, Lord, I pray that these would be just avenues through which we come in with the word of salvation. And there will be a day when we will stand before your throne and we could, like with Paul, look at each other and we can rejoice and we can say, you know what, I, God used me. God was so gracious to me to allow me to, to impact you and so that you are here to some extent because of my ministry to you. That is the kind of ministry that you will bless. That is the kind of hard desire, Father, that you will grant. And so I pray that on the individual level. I pray that as a, on the church level, that we would be that church that reaches out to others. We thank you, Lord. I pray, build us up to look for opportunities because they're right in front of our nose. We pray and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.